Welcome again to Chi Alpha. If you don't know me, my name's Tim, and I'm on staff here with Chi Alpha. What's up? Uh, you might recognize me from being on the worship team most weeks. Uh, that's, that's actually my twin. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's my twin. I'm just kidding. Um, what about me? I was actually a student here. What, what? Yeah, like, you know, like, see what? Hey, okay, yeah. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was a music major. Uh, so I, I, I did, like, I did marching band, I did jazz band, jazz combos, orchestra, basketball band, you, you name it. I did, like, all the music things. Yep, uh, music was pretty much my life. Uh, and that was up until Jesus actually kind of confronted me um, and showed me how much my, my devotion to music was getting in the way of my devotion to him. Um, and a few years after realizing that, uh, I felt like the Lord was leading me into ministry. And so I became an intern here with Chi Alpha. Let's go. And man, that was a growing year for me. Uh, it was in that year I, I learned to, like, to push myself past what my perceived capacities were. Uh, I learned how to read the Bible like so, so much better. Uh, I learned that Minecraft is an amazing de-stressor. Uh, actually, that was the first year that I ever played Minecraft. Shout out, Brayden. Thank you. Um, yep. And I also realized that I wanted to marry someone. This is a, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's my wife, Shana. Yep. She's amazing. That's me proposing. It's a good time. Uh, yeah, Shana is actually an intern now. Uh, and so hopefully she ends up learning that she wants to marry me too. Anyway. <laughs> Just kidding. It's a joke. <laughs> uh, a little bit more about me. Um, I had a reputation growing up in my youth group. Anyone else have a reputation growing up? Show of hands. Reputation. Okay. Or, or were you more of like a person who like flew under the radar? Show of hands. Okay. Like no responses. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> well, for me, in, in my youth group at church, uh, I was called Tim the Cheater. Yep, that was me, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily, like, you know, cheat all the time. Like, but I w what I would do was, you know, just simply try my hardest to bend all the rules to my benefit. So that's what I would do. Uh, and while, while the name didn't stick when I came to college, um, some of the tendencies did stick. Uh, and so, <laughs> so here's, here's, this is the story of my, uh, my first experience on SBO. Uh, just a side note, so far I've been on four SBO trips, and each one has been so different and so amazing and transformative. Um, like it's been an amazing time with Jesus, so I highly recommend going to SBO. Anyways, okay, so Taylor and Cassidy were my trip leaders, so they can attest to this. Um, we went to the U of I, University of Idaho, and their Chi Alpha was putting on a murder mystery night. Uh, it, was like, it was like fairy tale themed, and so I was given the character Gingy, the gingerbread man. Um, and I, I realized, like, okay, there's, there's, like, certain prizes for certain things. So you get a prize if you, like, guess the right murderer for the night, right? There's also a prize for, like, who ends up with, like, the most amount of gold coins. Like, there's, like, fake gold coins in the game. Uh, and then there was also, like, a prize for, like, best dress or something. And I didn't, I, like, it was, like, a week away, so I didn't have, like, a costume. So I was like, okay, I can't win that one. Um, I might get it wrong. And so, you know what? I'm going to try and go for the gold. And so <laughs> I ended up uh, just convincing a ton of people to join forces with me uh, and with me basically to either support me in giving me their gold coins or that they would, like, help distract other people so I could steal the coins of those people. <laughs> and so by, by the end of that night, uh, we counted up who had the most coins, 
and it was none other than the gingerbread man, Gingy uh, himself, just barely beating Snow White, uh, who had the most money and information from the start. So yeah, that was me, uh, the rule bender. Um, I've repented. It's actually, still repenting, actually. So um, yeah, if, if you've been with us uh, here at Kyle before, you know that we're studying the book of Matthew. Let's go. And tonight, we'll be looking at uh, some sections in Matthew 21. So uh, Bible pastors, actually, could you, could you come on up? Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I highly recommend that you have one for tonight. Um, yeah, just like raise your hand. Someone will, will give one to you. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and keep that one. Uh, yeah, so as Bible's getting passed out and turned to Matthew 21, uh, this is just like a, a short recap of everything that we've talked about so far. Uh, so the author of the book of Matthew was Matthew, surprise, surprise. Um, he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he walked very closely with Jesus. Um, like, li- literally lived life with Jesus for three years. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine living with Jesus for three years? Like, how much would you learn just simply from being with him? Be crazy. Um, so Matthew, is one of Jesus' closest followers, he seemed to be convinced that Jesus was the Savior of humanity, uh, the long-awaited Messiah, the perfect human, and his purpose in writing this book was to answer this question for his Jewish audience. Was Jesus really the one that the prophets spoke about centuries ago? Uh, we learned that Jesus is a, is a person of passion. Uh, he isn't indifferent toward things because he actually cares. Right? And this, like, this ends up setting up Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount um, and about his upside-down kingdom. Uh, like the upside-down kingdom, like it, it's like that God's kingdom is so, so different from the way of our world. Uh, and so much so that his audience was mind-blown. You guys remember that? Uh, we heard that Jesus wants to come, wants us to come to him as we are. Right? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Right? He, d- he doesn't expect us to make ourselves perfect and then come to him, um, but to come as we are, and then he will teach us his ways, which he's supposed to do. And then this last message two weeks ago, Melissa taught us that Jesus' view of humanity is just ridiculously high. Like he gives us so much dignity, and like much more dignity than we give ourselves or others. And that this is the lens to view people, not as people like getting in our way, but as a child of God who is worthy of love and being treated with humanity. So tonight, we are picking up the story of Jesus, narrated by Matthew. And over the last several chapters, he's actually been traveling and teaching all over the countryside. Um, and today, what we're going to read, uh, he, actually, he finishes his road trip and arrives in Jerusalem. So if we see here, uh, there's Caesarea Philippi. Like he, like he has a lot of travel between there and you see that body of water, the Sea of Galilee. Um, and then there's Capernaum right there. And so he does a lot of travel there. And right now, he's making his way from Capernaum to Jerusalem. Okay, makes sense? That's like, that's what's happening right now. He's actually arriving in Jerusalem at the start of Matthew 21. All right, um, where am I now? <laughs> yeah, so we, we arrive in Jerusalem, and we see all of his interactions. And for the most part, uh, we've read that Jesus was kind of, he was actually somewhat flying under the radar. Like, he, he didn't have a huge reputation like I did. Um, I, meaning he, <laughs> he wasn't making any, like, bold public claims about himself uh, before this, and especially not to the leadership of Israel. Like, he wasn't known as, you know, Jesus the cheater. Um, you know, he wasn't known as that. 
Um, so, like, Jesus really only revealed himself to his disciples. And in fact, there are several instances prior to this where he literally tells them to not tell anyone who he is. So there's Matthew 12 and there's Matthew 16. Those are two instances where this happens before our, our text. Um, it says like that. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might heal, kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill, and he warned them not to tell others about him. And then in Matthew 16, Peter has this amazing like, moment of realization. He's like, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Um, and then this is his response. He ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. So that's kind of what he's been doing so far. Uh, but in this upcoming section, we'll see that Jesus is like, he flips his previous more secretive script. Um, and, in, and in bringing his upside down kingdom, his passion comes out in a different way. So let's I pick up the story. Let's read Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Yeah, and for, for those of us who have, who've heard these texts before, I just simply would ask you to hear this with new ears and to read it with new eyes. Here it is. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, which means uh, house of figs. So they approached Jerusalem and came to the house of figs on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, which means save us, save us to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And in other translations, it says they were, like, they were in turmoil. The whole city was in turmoil. So this is like, like a distressing word. Um, and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So uh, a little background on this. Um, Jesus has actually timed his road trip for the week before the Jewish festival known as Passover. And if you didn't know, uh, Passover is, was like a, and it is a really big deal to the Jews, as it should be. Uh, because it is a preparation week of remembering the exodus out of Egypt, where God establishes a deeper covenant relationship with Moses, and then by extension, the people of Israel. So, so just to paint the picture a bit more clearly, Jesus has timed his arrival in Jerusalem, the capital city, with the most populous celebrated week in the whole year. He's, that's what he's timed his trip um, with. And so actually, most archaeologists say that there were around 50,000 residents in Jerusalem at the time. Um, but for the week of Passover, uh, there were around 150,000 Jews that would travel to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage. Can you, can you picture that? Like a, a city that's built for 50,000 and 150,000 people are coming. Um, how, in, like how insane would that be? Like, like why would Jesus time his arrival for then? Well, if there's, if there's anything that I've learned about Jesus 
uh, or his character in my years of following him and reading the Gospels, uh, it would be that he is just highly, highly intentional. Like this isn't a spontaneous road trip. It's just, it's highly planned. And we, we even see his intentionality in the first paragraph of this text about the donkey and the colt. Right, Jesus says to his disciples, go to the village ahead of you, find a donkey and a colt, uh, and then say this code word and then bring them back. Like that's, it's, it's just simply prearranged. Jesus has planned his visit to Jerusalem, Jerusalem accordingly. Uh, we even see similar things happen later in this week um, in the room where they had to celebrate the Last Supper. Like it's, it's all prearranged and there's even a code word to get into the room. So let's, let's just go back to what happens. So he, he sends the two disciples uh, to get the donkey and the colt with some instructions. Uh, they go to the village. They probably, you know, like awkwardly untie the animals. Like, you know, that hopefully doesn't, no one sees this. I don't know. <laughs> and then if, if someone asks, they say, the Lord needs them. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Right? It's, it's a code word. Um, and so, okay, the point that I want all of us to see is, is that all of Jesus' actions are just intentional. So what happens next? Uh, Jesus rides into the town, and there's an impromptu red carpet. People are taking their cloaks off and laying them down on the, on, the, on the road to lead Jesus into the capital city. And they're shouting, save us, son of David, save us. So let, let's pause here for a second. Like, is this Jesus' usual MO? Like, is this, is this his usual means of communicating? No, it's like it's literally the opposite. Like, all this time, he's been flying under the radar and telling people not to spread any information about him or that he's the Messiah. And, like, there's many other instances where people, like, he, like, heals some people and he responds, and uh, they respond with, like, you're the Messiah, you're, like, you're the son of David. And he's like, shh, don't do that. <laughs> uh, so now this is just, this is just full-blown public. Uh, if you notice, Jesus doesn't even, he doesn't, like, tell them to be quiet. Like, he acknowledges their words. And then he continues on his way to the city riding on a donkey. It's interesting. Um, did you guys know that this was not the first time an influential figure rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? You guys know that? Yeah. Yeah, so Taylor has said this before. He says, history rhymes. Uh, well, the, the last two figures to ride on a donkey into Jerusalem uh, was King David being reinstated as king. And then King Solomon, his son, for his coronation, both riding on donkeys into Jerusalem. So what is Jesus communicating? What is he saying by riding into Jer Jerusalem on a donkey? Like what is he communicating to Israel? Well, it seems like he's communicating. For three years, he's waited and waited. But now this is the moment to reveal himself as the true king of Israel, the true king of God's people. Can you imagine how the followers of Jesus in, in Jerusalem would have felt? So for, for a lot of them, it was probably like, wow, this is really happening. And, and that kind of meant, wow, this is the moment for our true king to take out the oppressors, the big bad Romans. Right? That was like a common conception of the Messiah. What about the religious leaders and the rulers? What were they thinking? How would they have felt? Well, it's probably something like, bro, we already have a literal king. It's Caesar Augustus. Uh, and now this guy's claiming to be king? Like, who the heck does he th think he is? I don't know. It, it, it seems to me that it's, this is like a great way to make people want you dead. Right? Like, that's, that's kind of what's happening. Uh, and so in, in all of this, I'm just trying to set the scene for what is to come. Because I want us to notice the intentionality of Jesus, both in what he's physically doing 
and what he is symbolically representing. So these, this next passage we're going to read, um, it actually it might make us look at Jesus in a new light. Um, we, we tend to know and we, and we love the, the meek and mild and gentle Jesus. But in this next passage, we see a different side of him. Um, one full of righteous and passionate anger, yet it's, it's still calculated and full of purpose that's deeper than the surface level of what he's actually like physically doing. And so the actual intent here um, is to be a provocateur. Like it's, it's, he's supposed to be someone who's provoking a response, just like the Israelite pr- uh, prophets. Uh, if you didn't know, the, the prophets um, in the Old Testament, they, they lived lives meant to shock their audience and demonstrate the symbolism of what is going to happen to Israel. I mean, if you, if you read Isaiah 20, uh, the Lord tells Isaiah to walk around with no clothes for three years as a sign for what is to happen to Egypt and Cush. Like that, imagine hearing that from the Lord. <laughs> like, are you sure? <laughs> um, yeah, so, so in, in this next passage, I think I, j- I just want us to take this lens, um, like to understand what's happening. Jesus is showing himself to be a, one of these provocative prophets of Israel. A one who shocks his audience with intentional in attention-getting behavior. And why does he do this? Well, it's because he has a message. The, the upside-down kingdom is here, and so is the king. And for those who understand the Hebrew scriptures, man, is this powerful. Uh, and for the record, no one has actually asked Jesus to become king. He's just making himself one. Uh, and so, so this might be equivalent to you marching up to the White House and announcing that you're president now. So just keep this in mind. Okay, let's, let's read verse 12 of, of Matthew 21. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of of robbers. If you look at your, f- your, your footnotes, who is Jesus quoting? You can shout it out. Isaiah, naked man, yep. And anyone? Jeremiah, nice. So he's, yep, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so he's quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah, yep. So we'll come back to Jeremiah. Um, okay, let's keep going on. The blind, the lame, they came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, save us to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read your Bibles? Like he literally tells, tells the, the Pharisees, like the teachers of the law, he, sa- he says, have you never read your Bibles? Anyway, so good. Okay, so he says, have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Okay, so what has just happened? Uh, <laughs> so Jesus went directly to the heart of the nation's culture, to the heart of the nation's life and leadership. And what does he do? He literally flips tables. Like, he gets angry. Uh, he flips tables and drives people out of the temple. But what's really interesting is, if, if you note, uh, he doesn't drive everyone out. Did you notice that? Who is Jesus okay with staying? It's the blind, the lame, and the children. 
And who are these people to the society of Jesus' time? Yeah, the lowest. They're the marginalized, the lesser, the other. And Jesus, with all his passion, still sees them with dignity and makes space for them in his kingdom. Jesus isn't blinded by passion. He sees with passion. Jesus isn't blinded by passion. He sees with his passion. Does passion blind you? So Jesus sees the marginalized through this lens of, comp- of passion. And this, this actually reminds me of, of, a, of a passage in James that keeps coming up in my core. Um, it says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not have a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Man, those are some hard-hitting words. And this is exactly what Jesus is showing with his actions. Do you see this? Yet again, I want to point us to Jesus. Jesus is highly intentional, right? Like we, we read Jesus' radical teachings, but do you see how radical he is in his actions? It's a display of God's zeal and justice. It's fierce. Like, like Jesus is clearly a man of passion. Did you guys know that Jesus cares fiercely for the poor and the marginalized? You guys know that. Did you know that Jesus cares fiercely for the poor and the marginalized? This is a central value of his, and therefore his kingdom. Is it one of ours? Uh, Just for a second, I want to pull us back out, um, remembering that there are 150,000 pilgrims, people traveling to Jerusalem for the week. Um, just a show of hands, who has done any, like, world travel? Cool, yep. So what's, what's one of the first things that you do when you arrive in another country? Customs, okay, sure, customs. And then you need to exchange money, right? Um, you exchange your money at an exchange booth uh, for actually useful money in that town or country. And what's the exchange rate? It's pretty bad. <laughs> yep, usually it's pretty bad. You're, n- you're not going to get the best deal. Um, so let's, let's look at, like, the minute details of this text. Um, I, I, I love this stuff. Um, so first, remember, okay, there's 150,000 new arrivals for Passover where animals need to be bought for sacrifices, meals need to be prepared, money needs to be exchanged, and these new arrivals, they actually they find themselves at the temple trying to arrange all of this. And we actually know that the temple did not usually have a business running inside of it. Um, but it now has become this. And what is Jesus' response? Flip tables. He isn't having it. And so why, why is this such an important detail? Like why, why is Jesus objecting to this? Well, it seems that the religious leaders are making a hefty profit off of the people. They've created a business to take advantage of the foreign travelers. And do you see the specific animal that is being sold in this passage? Someone shout it out. It's doves, Right? Yeah, why is, why is the dove important? Is there, is there anyone, you know, like reading the book of Leviticus right now? Anyone? No? Okay. Well, <laughs> surprise. Uh, according to Leviticus, if you are a poor Israelite and you don't have enough money to afford a lamb or Passover, but you still want to show your thanks to go- the God of Israel, well, guess what animal you can buy with the money that you have? A dove, right? Again, yeah, it's a dove. So do you guys, do you guys see what's happening here? 
Jesus walks into the temple and finds that the religious leaders have moved a business into the heart of the temple, into heart of the temple courts that is not only profiting from the money exchangers, but is extorting the poor, like literally taking advantage of the poor, and it's all in the name of the God of Israel. Can you understand Jesus' response a little bit, a little better now? And do you see how these like little details change how we interpret the text? There's so much life in it. Man, it's crazy. Be- Jesus is literally saying to the religious elites, you're making God's house, a house meant for worship and honor and prayer, into a den of robbers. And this quote, den of robbers, so it's, it's, he's quoting in the style of one of Israel's provocative prophets, Jeremiah. And so let's, let's actually read this whole passage that he's quoting from, Jeremiah 7. And I, I want you guys to put yourselves in the shoes of the Pharisees. So this is what, this is Jeremiah 7, and this is what Jesus is quoting. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship. Worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What that really means is like, look, we have a shiny temple. God, like God is worshipped because we have a shiny temple. Um, yeah. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we're safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching you, declares the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, so what's going on in the minds of the Bible teachers? They, They know exactly what Jesus is saying when he quotes Jeremiah here. The accusation couldn't be more clear. You have failed in your job as the religious leaders, you are leading people astray. Uh, we often, we often get uncomfortable thinking about this confrontational Jesus. But this is a part of who he is. We don't just get the meek, mild, gentle Jesus who tells us to love everyone. We have to reckon with this Jesus as well. The one who confronts human evil and corruption who longs for justice for the lower, supposedly lower class parts of society, the one who calls out the religious folk leading others astray. Both of these together are the true biblical Jesus. And in fact, it's because of his passionate love for us that he is confrontational. So do you see what happens when, when we only have one half of these two parts? We not only have an incomplete Jesus, but we've made up our own Jesus, a Jesus who is easier and more palatable for us. Friends, we need the true biblical Jesus. We need this Jesus to learn his kingdom values from. We need this Jesus to confront us in our own habits and thought, thought patterns and perceptions of others. And we also need this Jesus to love us and support us and give us our true identity. So I want to leave us tonight with just one simple question 
as we move into worship. So worship team, come on up. Uh, and this is the question. What does Jesus want to confront in your life? What does Jesus want to confront in your life? If we're, if we're honest, we just haven't lived lives worthy of Jesus. We've, we've dishonored him. We've, we haven't treated people well or even or viewed them with dignity. We've chosen compromise. We've justified our sinful tendencies. We've let thoughts run rampant in our brains. We idolize our grades. We idolize our relationships. We have a tendency to want control. Yeah, we are prideful. We lack compassion. We use our time and money poorly, and we're controlled by lust. We're a slave to our addictions and our temptations. And I don't say this to, to shame us or to shame anyone. I, I just say this for us to recognize that we actually need the loving Jesus to confront us passionately because what we are doing is destroying us. We need the loving Jesus to confront us passionately because what we're doing is destroying us. So what does Jesus want to confront in you tonight so that you aren't dragged down into destruction? Just as I needed Jesus to confront my over-devotion to music, you also might need Jesus to confront things in your life. So I want to I bring us to a close with Paul's words in Romans 5, 8. It says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So would you allow Jesus' love for you to confront you tonight?